0: This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live.
1: Good morning. It's Monday. It's the 25th of April. I'm Tabitha McIntosh in the breakfast slot. And today I'm talking about the role of national literary canons in constructing the imagined communities we call nations. Empire, colonisation, Volkish nationalism, and miserable reading lists. Fun. Fun. Hello, especially to that chat there, Mike, and uh, Lesson Copy, who are my most loyal people turning up on this grisly phenomenon that is Monday morning. Lots of people going back to school this week. I went back last week, so frankly, I've got no sympathy, none at all. (laughs) Hi, Mike, Mike is saying good morning. Mike had lots to say about our topic this week because uh, when it comes to literature and nation building, Germany, like France, really has, has that at the heart of their whole conception of the nation. But on the topic of literary canons and literature and what children should read and how we construct a nation, I'm going to start with something that every librarian and English teacher in the country is familiar with, which is a scheme that began in 1998, um, started by David Campbell of the Everyman's Library. Uh, He dreamt up a plan to donate 300 classic books to every single state secondary school in the UK. Um, they all came. They're in hardback, instantly recognisable. Um, three bands: black at the top, black at the bottom, white in the middle. Hardback and and the you know author name, text name. They were not specifically UK in their construction of what this kind of books every child should read list was. They were um, they, they were global in nature, all in translation, but they came from all around the world um, from the classical period through to the middle ages up to modernity um like i said from all around the world they're not really all around the world all around most of the world all around the european world etc um, at the time there was quite a bit of coverage of the fact that some of the schools had turned them down um, <laughs> not all schools however said the guardian at the time have appreciated the gift A letter from one expressed dismay and sadness at the waste of money these books are. Even an Ofsted inspector asked me why I hadn't binned them, they said. (laughs) So what is interesting is that if you've been in a school library since, um, since the mid 2000s or the early 2010s, you'll have noticed that you can't really see these books anymore. Now, I'm really, I'm not working on a huge sample, but I think I'm quite confident in saying that almost all of these books have now disappeared from libraries. Um, when I was working in Chesham in a school in in the late first decade of the, of, of the millennium, they were all being essentially given away because no one ever took them out for a variety of reasons, but it, it was a gesture. Um, and from the website, what they said, between 98 and 2006, we donated a complete set of the main Everyman series to 1,700 schools and libraries in 77 countries of the developing world, with the generous support of the Millennium Commission, a total of more than 1,715,000 books, 1,715,000 books, with a bookshop value of more than 19 million pounds. Surprisingly, this was the only millennium project in the UK to celebrate the English language and its literature or to concern schools and books. And the money quote here from um, the publisher, These books are the DNA of our civilization. They should be available to everyone as they grow up. So an awful lot of commentary and thinking packed into those two really rather conflicting quotations. Um, Number one, these 300 books comprised a canon that went everywhere from Nigeria to Portugal to, you know, ancient Greece, ancient Rome, modern Britain. Um, Number two, these books are the DNA of our civilization. So you have this creation of a reading list, which our civilization, and also the English language and its literature. You know, an enormous number of these books are in translation and are not English. And in nature, a lot of them aren't English at all. They're from Scotland or Wales or Ireland. So lots of contradictory stuff tied up there in a project which ultimately failed. What does our civilization mean here is really the question I asked Twitter. Um, What do people read in order to summarize our civilization? I was talking to my partner last night and he said, oh, the Bible. We can make a case for the Bible being the book that everyone has to read. And I'm like, well, you can make a case for the King James version of the Bible, being one that very specifically British and American, maybe American, maybe Australian people have to read. He's a bit put out by that because he's Catholic. Sorry, dude. Your, your version of the Bible is not the one we all need to read and that of course reminds us of one of the things that we love to beat Michael Gove with a stick over rhetorically which was his 2012 plan to distribute a copy of the King James Bible to every school in the country <coughs> which, which was as people said at the time dismissed as a vanity project because the Bibles are marked presented by the Secretary of State for Education um, I think quite famously, those Bibles were never distributed,? Right? Um, it's also, we've got, you know, Michael Gove, our civilization, all these ideas going on here in the background, like to take us to Marine Le Pen's defeat yesterday. Um, as in our country, as in the United States, as across the world, um, Le Pen's project is deeply embedded in something that is termed the memory politics of the far right. Um, which lovely article I read this morning, first published in February 22 by Dahlia Sofa. She's talking about the use of collective memory in the populist messaging of Marine Le Pen, which, thankfully for all of us, has failed this time around. What is the memory politics of Le Pen? Every national group, um, the article author says, has a body of collective memories that shape its national identity, and therefore, when politicians reference a historical event. They are evoking the collective memory the nation has forged of that event, which frequently can be very different from historical reality. Now, while historical memory and literary memory are connected in quite obvious ways, actually for Le Pen, partly because of, as we'll see, the nature of the way nationalism and nation is constructed in France, it's very specifically literary and it's very specifically drawing on a French literary canon. So. I'll read you a bit of the analysis here. Among other things, Marine Le Pen frequently mentions La Douce France or Sweet France, which is a reference to the Chanson de Roland. The epic poem is the foundation of French national literature and is included in the curriculum of all French students. It recounts a battle that occurred in Spain in 1778, between, I'm going to do English pronunciations, so just brace yourself for pain, uh, between Charlemagne and the Saracens and sets the stage for a perpetual struggle between the French and Islam. In the story, a glorified vision of France is under siege by followers of the prophet Muhammad. Charlemagne, however, is too trusting and leaves his rear flank exposed. The traitorous heathens take advantage of this and reveal their barbarity by attacking in an effort to invade France. Victory is torn from the ashes of defeat by a last-gasp, all-out effort on Charlemagne's behalf, made by a small band of royal guards led by Roland, ready to sacrifice their lives for the country. The invaders are ultimately defeated because of the actions of these devoted loyalists who were willing to fight for their country in the same way that Marine Le Pen, Front National, the right wing, is ready to fight for France today. The poem depicts Muslims as treacherous and untrustworthy, if the French are too naive or trusting the messages here, as Charlemagne was, Muslims will take advantage and destroy French culture and society. The tale also allows supporters of Marine Le Pen and the Front National to identify with the Royal Guards, cementing a sense of unity and brotherhood within their ranks. So it's not that the, the Song of Roland is, is in the history of, is, is core to the French pantheon and core to French national canon and identity because it's anti-Muslim. What's interesting here is the fact that we're drawing on our literary canon to reflect whatever our specific cultural preoccupations are. And then more specifically here, quite overtly, that ties to, as anyone familiar with German nationalism and literature will know, Ties to this idea of blood and soil nationalism, that both the language and the people, the ethnic identity of the people are tied together in one body of remembered and passed on canonical literature, which I did say I was going to be nerdy today. It's a little bit like a grad school seminar where I've only done like a Wikipedia version of the reading, but bear with me that if you're familiar at all with the history of discussions surrounding nation, you will immediately recognize that. What I'm drawing on here is Benedict Anderson's model of imagined communities. Um, published in 1983, still one of the top ten cited books in the humanities. Um, he's writing about the emergence of the modern nation state. So, so not the principality, not the monarchy, not the, the religious you know, construction of self and, and community. But instead, the modern nation state. Um, what he says, his kind of term from the introduction, is that the nation is an imagined political community. It's imagined because the members of even the smallest nation will never know most of their fellow members, meet them, or even hear of them. Yet, in the minds of each, is the image of their communion. And Anderson um, attaches that so he looks at three things that he says. Make one of these successful, like one of these imagined communities succeed, looks at the mechanism of how they work. Um, the first one that he says is he puts reading and books at the absolute heart of it. The increasing importance of mass vernacular literacy, so not that sort of pan-European speaking of of Latin and literature written in Latin, but the emergence of um, vernacular canon, which you know. The Song of Roland, is that that's exactly what the French doing, that's exactly what Marine Le Pen is doing there. Um, The British equivalent would be Chaucer. Uh, But when we have people able to read it, then that's a mechanism whereby the imagined community can transmit its idea of itself, a cohesive idea of a national self written in a local national language. Um, Also, it ties to that, the larger idea of the movement to abolish ideas of rule by divine right and hereditary monarchy. And so nation's dream of being free, he says, the gauge and emblem of this freedom of the sovereign state. So we have this idea of the free sovereign state tied to the body of literature in the vernacular language and rather crucially, the emergence of mass literacy, meaning that people can read it and it can be transmitted. And then finally, we have the emergence of printing press capitalism. So the convergence of capitalism and print technology the standardization of national calendars, clocks and language embodied in books and the publication of daily newspapers. So circulation of newspapers, circulation of canonicity, the emergence of mass education and the teaching of canons within those are quite explicitly and overtly always about creating nations and um, as anyone who has read a uh, Abington Macaulay will remember, we'll come back to that in a second. Um, A kind of nice instance of this is um, the Pantheon in France, which is a mausoleum in Paris for the most distinguished French people. It was begun in 1758, um, intended as a, a religious place. But by the time it was finished, of course, the revolution had already happened. So instead, it became the temple of the nation rather beautifully for our purposes. French revolutionary politics always spitting out very convenient symbols and things to analyse. The temple of the nation for the most esteemed historic French citizens and the first person put in there, the first remains interred inside, dug up and then moved were Voltaire's. So literature at the heart of this French state, which is not a religion. Now, before we go to ads, I'm gonna go to Charles Babington Macaulay, which if you did English um, for a PGCE at a lot of places around the country, hopefully you will have read because part of the interrogation of thinking why we teach English and what the function of teaching English is. If you're not familiar with Babington Macaulay, I'm just gonna start reading to you from Babington Macaulay and you can sort of feel where you realize it's gone horribly wrong and you no longer agree with it. Right, so we all think the canon's great I'm just summarizing here. We all think knowledge is important at the moment in literature. We all think that every child should have access to the vast treasure house of knowledge which you know we have inherited, which is the way Gove put it, or the checklist of literature, what every American slash British person slash Western European should know, as E.D. Hirsch would put it. Um, are Regina Macaulay? Right. And just put your finger on where it goes wrong. I have conversed both here and at home with men distinguished by their proficiency in the Eastern tongues. I have never found one among them who could deny that a single shelf of a good European library was worth the whole native literature of India and Arabia. Honours might be roughly even in works of the imagination, such as poetry. But when we pass from works of imagination to works in which facts are recorded and general principles investigated, the superiority of the Europeans becomes absolutely immeasurable. Whoever knows English, has ready access to all the vast intellectual wealth which all the wisest nations of the earth have created and hoarded in the course of 90 generations. It may be safely said that the literature now extant in English is of far greater value than all the literature which 300 years ago was extant in all the languages of the world together. The question now before us is simply whether, when it is in our power to teach this language, we shall teach languages by which, by universal confession, there are not books on any subject which deserve to be compared to our own. Babington Macaulay is uh, writing for to persuade um, the Parliament to pass the uh, English Education Act, 1835. What's fascinating about that construction, English Education Act, is that it applies to India. So this is a plan to teach Indians in English on the basis that all the best books are in English and that their books are trash. So the, the whole idea of the canon is emerging here as a tool for, for civilising, I hope you can hear my inverted commas, civilising, um, controlling and colonising a nation through the construction of a canon. Um, a lot of people argue, I think very persuasively, that our entire model of um, the literary canon in schools in Britain as it develops over the 19th century and into the 20th, comes first from this colonising model, because what people are studying in schools, of course, what your public school boys are doing is not the history of, of literature in English at all. They're not doing you know, what Macaulay calls the vast intellectual wealth, which all the wisest nations of the earth have created and hoarded in the course of 90 generations in English. They're doing Latin and Greek. So this idea of the, the civilizing canon that, that enriches, he uses the same language as Gove there with the you know the treasure and the glory and the collective jewels of nations. and um, that comes from a quite specifically imperial place. And then of course when we get to the end of the 19th century, essentially we have Arnold formulating teaching literature in schools as sort of classics for poor people. But again, tied up with nation and empire. Right, I'm gonna play the news and then I'll come back with more excited nerdery, okay?
0: This episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack Group, the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care. They're here to support you, too, through an ever-growing offer of free resources, including webinars, podcasts, articles, and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.witherslackgroup.co.uk to find out more. Imagine a world where you were free to focus on sparking curiosity in your students and giving them access to the awe and wonder of learning a world where you were supported to deliver a truly personalized education to help all your learners achieve their potential. No need to imagine it because that's exactly what the Oxford Smart Curriculum Service delivers. Seamlessly integrating curriculum, resources, assessment, next steps and professional development This is Teachers Talk Radio and this is Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn.
2: In Wales, head teachers are optimistic that the new term beginning on Monday will be the most normal since 2019. School visits, leavers events, sports days, awards, fairs and shows. running for the first time since the pandemic began. New schools advice is due to be issued on Friday May the 6th. Teaching unions however have warned that it is not business as usual and there is still a high risk of COVID disruption. Teaching Union summed up mixed feelings saying hopefully with the weather improving there will be more opportunities for schools to plan extracurricular activities. However, only time will tell if the infections will rise or not after the Easter break. Karen Brown, head teacher of Millbank Primary School in Cardiff said, We are not so worried about COVID now, but there were still plenty of cases last term. So we are continuing with good ventilation and hygiene. We are looking forward to things like sports days again, our plan is to invite parents to that and to our first year six lever service for two years. We started trips last term and years five and six had an amazing time at Story Arms. We couldn't do that in the last two years. According to new research by the National Literacy Trust, parents spent less time reading, chatting and playing with their children during the pandemic. The Trust surveyed more than 1,500 parents with children under five. Overall, the report found that fewer parents of young children engaged in home learning activities (coughs) – reading, chatting, playing, singing or painting and drawing – in 2021 compared with 2019, despite spending more time in their home with their child due to the pandemic. Spokesperson Alison Tebbs said, It was such a difficult time for people. There was less support for families. There was less socialisation happening and beneficial activities like going to the park or library were often unable to take place. Reading with children and having conversations is vital for helping their brains develop. One of the reasons two-year-olds act out is because they're trying to communicate feelings which they can't explain verbally. That's why you get tantrums. The more words they have and the more support they get when they communicate, the more in touch they will be with their emotions and with the wider world. This has been your latest Teachers Talk Radio news with Gail Glenn.
0: This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio.
3: Hello, this term is known to be one of the hardest. When we're distracted and tired, it's easy to make a mistake and fall for a scam. There are loads of scams out there, but the use of subdomains to give a fake sense of security is one scam that a lot of people fall for. In the interest of keeping you, your family and your friends safe over the next two episodes, I'm going to explain the fake bank message scam and how it can look so believable. First up, we need to discuss how data travels over the internet. If you explore an internet address, let's take Teachers Talk Radio as our example HTTPS www.ttradio.org. There are basically four parts. HTTPS, this is Hypertext Transfer Protocol, with the S standing for secure. Protocols are used for data transfer. The HTTP protocol allows the transmission of HTML or hypertext markup language from a web server to your computer. In basic terms, it lets a web page be requested and viewed. The confusion here is the secure version. Some believe that seeing a site is HTTPS and has a little padlock in the address bar means that you are protected. To some extent, this is true. However, the security certificate for a site simply encrypts or scrambles the transmission, so if it's intercepted, it can't be used. So yes, you are secure from interception, but if the owner of a website is dishonest, you're not safe from them. The next three parts are to do with where the web page resides or the address. Like we need a postcode and house number, your computer needs to know where to look for the information you want. www is the World Wide Web, a huge network of interconnected networks. TT Radio is the name of the website, and .org is the top-level domain. Again, simplifying this, .org domains are kept in a kind of phone book that can be accessed by your internet service provider. So to find TTRadio.org, .org tells you to look in the .org phone book for TT Radio and return where the website is for your browser to download it. Why don't you ask your pupils, family and friends what they believe the padlock and HTTPS means? You may be surprised at the answer you receive. Next time, we're going to look at how criminals use this misconception to gain your trust. As always, don't forget to check out the TT Radio 2022 Twitter feed. Tell us what you want to know about tech. I'm Steve Woods, and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on
0: Teachers Talk Radio.
1: Hi, I'm Tabitha McIntosh, you're back with me on The Breakfast Show, and we are talking, I am talking, about the construction of national canons, what we make children read in school, and how that um, is related to nation and nation state. So while um, the news was playing, I went to look at what the Scottish set text list is. Now remember, at the beginning I talked about the set of Everyman books, 300 Everyman books that was sent by the publisher to every school in the country. And if your school is like mine has subsequently largely disappeared, um, except for a few of them. Literature in English, in the DNA of our civilization, the DNA, how it replicates itself, how we will continue as a nation. Um, so I'm going to read you the name of some authors on the Scottish set text list and stop me. Well, don't stop me because you can't. I'm uncontrollably in charge on the radio. But stop me when you recognise one that is taught in English schools. <clears throat> Rona Monroe, Alan Spence, Anne-Marie de Mambro, Ian Crichton-Smith, Robert Jenkins, Anne Donovan, James Robertson, uh, Norman McRae, Edwin Morgan, Jackie Kay, John Patterson, Liz Lockheed, Robert Burns, Norma, we've had Norma McRae, Sully McLean, uh, John McGrath, Ina Lamont Stewart, John Byrne, Robert Jenkins, Robert Louis Stevenson, and Carol Duffy. If you are like me, even though I spent a year doing a master's degree in Aberdeen and immersed myself in that time in, um, in stuff written in both English and Scots, really haven't heard of most of those texts and you certainly don't teach any of those authors in schools. It's apart from Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, which is on the the Scottish set text list, and the occasional poem by Carol Ann Duffy, We All Teach Valentine. Is Carol Ann Duffy's Scottishness considered when we teach Valentine? Oh, God, no. She is not approached as a Scottish author. Is Robert Louis Stevenson approached as a Scottish author? Again, oh, God, no. We just, uh, we, we do... Uh, you know, mm, homosocial networks. And, um, you know, if if we're feeling clever, we might look at some bits and pieces that suggest that it's the metropole at the heart of empire. We never consider Stevenson as a Scot. And yet, you know, if you look at Marie, the way Marine Le Pen is using the French pantheon, the French canon to construct a sense of nation, contra immigrants um, in the way that in 1791, the French put together their, you know. Yeah. So I'm, I'm talking about my mother is correcting me on dates 1791. Yes, mother. (laughs) That is when the pantheon is built. It's not when Roland is written. Anyway, 1791, when the pantheon is built and Voltaire's remains are interred in there. We have a cohesive body of literature that's been chosen to represent an imagined history of the nation. In the United Kingdom, we do no such thing. So That is one of the most interesting things I'm finding here in my research for this is that while other nations attempt to construct a nation state from regional spaces and places around them in order to to convey a coherent sense of of their nation, we don't do that. We the the literature as taught in England does not overtly attempt to take into account the literatures in the Englishes of Wales and Scotland and Ireland, right? We don't interrogate it. It's largely English. When we say literature in England, we really mean English. We mean literature in England. Why don't we do that? Why don't we more consciously craft a nation? Well, Linda Colley, Mike listening, will be very familiar with Linda Colley's argument. Linda Colley, um, who writes, who wrote the book Britons, which is, again, very influential, she's looking at the kind of post early 19th century act of union that brings the countries together in their final form and says that the notion of britain and the notion of britishness is crafted through empire through military service that is the the construction that allows the united kingdom to think of itself as as a nation and with the collapse of empire um it's interesting i think that we never we have not replaced that with a sense of national canon and identity I wonder why we don't. I wonder why it's so so impervious to to being porous and defining itself that way. Um, let's go back to where we were. So so that's that's our side note on Scotland. Um, and one of the things we're talking about the um, you know inheritance of Western civilization. That's very much kind of where we've been at now since the Gove education reforms. And the Gove of education reforms, the the notion of um, a coherent canon, but not just a canon in English, but a, a coherent Western civilizational canon that we inherit, which is very very different to a constructed body of the history of a nation. In you know, at the heart of the French Republic, or at the heart of Germany, um, it is deliberately and quite overtly hugely geographically dispersed. So a kind of crucial texts in the development of this particular approach are Alan Bloom's The Closing of the American Mind that comes out in 1987, and E.D. Hirsch's Cultural Literacy, Literacy, What Every American Needs to Know, that comes out the same year. Um, it's a bestseller, but doesn't sell as much as Alan Bloom. And then, of course, your friend, not my friend, Harold Bloom, The Western Canon, The Books and Schools of Ages, which, which comes out seven years later. Now, what all three of these texts do, and they're all three American texts, is posit the idea that um, the education in America, very specifically in America, talking about the West, talking about Anglophone education, but really they're all three rooted very much in a sense of Americanness, um, should be the inheritors of a Western canon that begins in ancient Greece, includes Rome and then travels all over Europe, but mostly to England to construct and embody a coherent set of texts and knowledges that are the inheritance of America. So um, Hirsch, well, Alan Bloom and, and Harold Bloom both position themselves against what's going on in the modern humanities canon when they're writing in the 80s and 90s, which is of course no such thing. People aren't sitting around picking out books to say the, this is the canon from which we inherit civilization. Alan Bloom's is a a very angry culture war type text. Um, Noam Chomsky described it as, a, as an argument that education ought to be set up like some sort of variant of the Marine Corps in which you just march the students through a canon of great thoughts that are picked out for everybody. And then rather beautifully, Edie Hirsch in cultural literacy kind of literally does that. These are the facts that you should know, right? Cultural literacy is here, not a prescriptive list of books, but by a descriptive list of the information possessed by literate people. So <laughs> Alan Bloom is like, these are the great thoughts, you should learn them. Edie Hirsch is like, this is what you will know if you have read the great thoughts. So two sides of the same coin. Um, Bloom, who is who is a you know a, a more applied humanities thinker, um, is still very much I mean, he defends the Western canon by discussing 26 writers who he sees as central to them. And that's one of the the weird things about all of these type of discussions. When you're creating a canon or talking about a canon in the modern age, it tends to turn into a reading list. Um, So his texts, like the, the 26 authors he includes, I'll just read some of them. William Shakespeare, Dante Alighieri, Geoffrey Chaucer, Cervantes, Montaigne, Moliere, Milton, Johnson, Goethe, Wordsworth, Austin, Walt Whitman, first American to hit the list, Emily Dickinson, second American to hit the list, and now we're back to England, Charles Dickens, George Eliot, Leo Tolstoy, we've gone Russian, uh, Henrik Ibsen, Norway, Sigmund Freud, not really a novelist, not sure what he's doing there, but definitely not American. Marcel Proust, James Joyce, Virginia Woolf, Franz Kafka, Borges, Neruda, Pessoa and Beckett. So two Americans on his list. And that's quite crucial because what is cool to note here is that this is an assemblage of literary traditions created by an American for, American, for America, which positions itself now endlessly in rhetoric, as the inheritor of the West, as the ultimate expression of the Western tradition. So it's unsurprising that in these sort of canon wars that have been going on from the 80s into the 90s, the American versions of that canon would end up being so peculiarly un-American. Um, it's interesting when I asked people on Twitter, um, what I got. one of the things I got really interested in is how nations with settler colonial bases Incorporate the canon of the original colonising nations. So, for for Bloom, you can see the original. You know, the, it, it might as well be Babington Macaulay talking about you know the the greatest works in ninety generations in the English language. It's it's mostly drawn from English literature, not just British literature, but English literature. Um, Carolina on Twitter, interestingly, same thing in Chile. Right. So in Chile. Um, Don Quixote is absolutely crucial to what everyone must read in school, Um, as well as uh, Neruda, as well as some British and European authors, she says um, in translation, Jack London and Shakespeare. Um, So so I said, I find that fascinating that so much of it is Spanish literature rather than Chilean or other Latin American literature. And she said, yeah, even when I was studying performing arts in Chile, a huge push for Spanish texts and a tiny module for Latin American playwrights when there are plenty and some excellent ones. So in Australia, what's Australia doing? Are they looking at a, a national canon that is kind of removed from that? Or are they largely replicating the canon of the original colonizing nation? Well, in Australia, Alison says in the 80s, we did Shakespeare, Austin Browning. Um, one Australian poet, Kenneth Slessor, Australian novelist Jessica Anderson, um, a modern plays were Equus and Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? Mrs. McIntosh said, mostly the same as the UK, but with some commonly seen Australian editions. So it's a, a, a British canon, but mostly an English canon, with some added extras of national set text. Um, Never Never, Capricornia, Looking for Ali Brandy, Banjo Patterson's poems and songs. And so I said to all of them, and from what you're all saying, Australia seems incredibly UK heavy. Mrs. McIntosh said, yeah, definitely. Gatsby, Shakespeare, Yeats, Steinbeck, all I was taught here. It got more diverse in senior school due to doing IV, but not by much. When I was taught, there was also Plath, Hughes, more Shakespeare. And um, just to skip to Martin in Canada, he said we're there a Shakespeare every year in secondary, which meant that he'd studied six fairly fully before graduating. Of course, the um, Education Act introduced by Ken Baker, um, my mother trained to teach under that, that made Shakespeare compulsory at every key stage in the national curriculum. Um, So if we have a canon, it it might be that we have to learn Shakespeare at every key stage, but otherwise we're, yeah, I'm going back to the idea that actually the United Kingdom is not very good at being able to even imagine a canon that represents canonicity and nation. Um, and with Englishness, we'll go to Shakespeare, but it's Englishness that's therefore being exported. You know, is I love the whole thing where people will credulously believe he was born and died on St. George's Day. Oh, what a coincidence that the avatar of Englishness should happen to die and be born on Britain's National Day. Grow up, people. <laughs> um, let's go back to Australia, look at CISO, Lies, Charmander and B in Australia in the early 90s. Uh, the Hobbit, Diary of Anne Frank, The Outsiders, so America, uh, Netherlands, and, and England, Huckleberry Finn, Coleridge, T.S. Eliot, Death of a Salesman. Um, an awful lot of the kind of like canon as represented in school in Anglophone nations pulls on the same few American texts, Gatsby of Mice and Men, which obviously we all talk forever and ever and ever to kill a mockingbird. Um, and that that's a, a subject for a different show or a different essay in a graduate class is what is the version of the American canon that gets transplanted or exported or imported? Um, why why is it that we've replaced our entire sort of, f- for several decades, our students' understanding of what race, racism and, and rights and all of those things mean with American mid-century texts instead of looking at local racial histories. I think we did it on purpose, but there you go. Um, yeah, and then lies Charmander being educated in the late 2000s, early 10s, or teaching then, not quite sure. Um, Hatchet, Lockie Leonard, Boy Overboard, so a bit more local there. Um, Canada, to go back to Martin's, he is talking about Alias Grace being taught, but um, the apprenticeship of Duddy Kravitz, Stone Angel, but Lord of the Flies. Okay, so Shakespeare, Shakespeare, Shakespeare. As as a, a nation that comes from England, as part of the Commonwealth, you are the inheritor of the English literary tradition, which means Shakespeare, right? Um, interestingly, on contested spaces, um, J.P. was uh, wrote about Catalonia and Spain. So in Catalonia, he says, where Catalan is compulsory in schools up to the age of 17 or 18, they study their own Catalan canon alongside what many consider to be the colonizing nation's canon. So you have two canons in dialogue with each other or in opposition to each other, uh, fighting against each other. Um, France and French nationalism, always fascinating. I have to say my jaw dropped when I saw what people are reading just in regular school before they get to baccalaureate stage in France. I, obviously, we have the Language Academy in France, like like I keep saying, we've got the 1791 establishment of the Republic it comes with the enshrinement of, of writers in the French language. At the heart of it, we've got, you know, modernity, everyone is able to call upon their history of the French Writers, in order to construct whatever political position they want to, and that's at the heart of what Marine Le Pen has been unsuccessfully doing. But uh, what Greg said is stuff we actually read at school. So, not just stuff we should read, but stuff we actually read. Uh, Ronsard's super creepy Mignon à l'envoi, si la rose, and the other rose poems, Rabelais, everything by Molière, he says, uh, Cornet, Racine, Balzac, uh, mostly the short ones, Flaubert. Hugo, Mousset, Vigny, George Sand, Baudelaire, Rambo, uh, Zola, Maupassant, Camus, um, and I'm sure I left some out, but it was a distinct sausage fest, he says, <laughs> um, but also that is quite a staggeringly complex set of texts. Now, if we just thought maybe Greg had a Greg was making it up, then we also have JL write to us to say essentially the same thing. But another thing I find fascinating, <laughs> Les Fleurs de Mal on here. Like what is happening with French children? <laughs> They're reading Baudelaire. <laughs> this explains so much about France, quite frankly, I think. Like Les Fleurs de Mal is really not what we will be giving our year nines. Like, yeah. Um, and that's before baccalaureate. Right. So before seventeen, eighteen, this really is like there's a huge push on these. This is the, the history of French literature, the the greatness of French literature, and a body of it, a quite coherent body of it, and it's you know, taught to everyone. Um. And also really fascinated by the role of Don Quixote in you know Chile and Catalonia and and other you know places that come from. Spanish settler colonial population bases and what's going on there. Now let's get to Germany. Um, I'll start rather than with Mike's beautiful description of the list, I'm going to go with um, a rather cranky thing from a sort of like conservative discussion of why teachers aren't good enough in Germany, talking about the body of literature, which is the bit that's compulsory. So in Germany, through the introduction of the central school leaving exam, the federal states have ensured that the same books are read in the senior classes throughout the whole country, yet without detailed stipulations being made to schools. Free scope for teachers is restricted, however, in view of the very precise stipulations regarding which books and ranges of topics will actually be examined. Schiller's plays are on the reading list everywhere, and Goethe's Faust is obligatory reading nationwide. despite despite the fact that many teachers say on the quiet that the work is too complicated for school pupils today. One teacher even writes anonymously, what's so special about Faust? And then they say thunderously, I'm very upset. A teacher who asks this question is unlikely to awaken enthusiasm for Goethe among pupils. And without that, even the best canon is useless. Right. Um, someone else slightly less alarmed going through it says um, in addition to stories by Kleist, which is obligatory reading in almost all federal states and ETA Hoffmann's The Sandman, there is one undisputed favourite both on the curricula and among German teachers, Franz Kafka. Almost every single German school pupil will be confronted with his story Metamorphosis. His novel The Trial is also read, uh, as are his many parables, fragmentary texts and letters. It is an open secret that in addition to a genuine enthusiasm for Kafka, his supreme craftsmanship, especially in his short texts, also plays a role in class. Yeah, that is one of the reasons why we all studied of mice and men for so long. It's very, very short. And that's the secret of an inspector calls to. Um All right. Well, what is it? <laughs> so if France is, if they're all getting Baudelaire, um, every child in in the French nation, if. Uh, if they are reading Les Fleurs de Mal, and we can claim that tells us uh, something about like the, the French character at the end of their, their canonical education, what German children are all reading is the, is the Sandman by Hoffmann. OK, so <laughs> I do that story with my Gothic students, but only because um, in Freud's essay on the uncanny, he uses it to explain the uncanny. So then we read this like deeply weird and um, pretty hilariously. Nonsensical in translation, story about like a poison robot girl in a garden, da da da. But it's like profoundly gothic. It is gothic. It's it's from that particular moment. The romanticism, the German gothic, gothic was so overwhelmingly German at that point that Edgar Allan Poe described what he was doing as German stories. Right. So so they've got the gothic at the heart of the canon and Kafka, Kafka and the gothic. Amazing. And we have what? Shakespeare, right? I guess. Uh, what Mike says that the kind of like the really interesting thing here um, is that he just clocks that my fo- focus was nation and nationalism, and two literary movements that the German school canon foregrounds very strongly are Storm and Drang, Proto Romanticism, and Trauma Literature, Post World War II. Two interesting bookends. So, of course, as we all know, there was no Germany when. German romanticism existed, there was just, you know, 120 plus um, city states and principalities and separate spaces that, that with no, no coherent German nation. And again, as I'm sure most of us know, you have the development of liberalism and nationalism goes alongside the idea of the shared language and the shared body of literature. And it's um, it comes hugely from romanticism, from Goethe, from Herder, from shilling all of these people. And and therefore, it is not surprising that romanticism is at the heart of what's required in the German canon. It's also rather interesting that it's so emotional, so emotional and so depressing. But the winner for most depressing, we've got a competition at the moment between two different countries, um, represented by two people who contributed to this discussion on Twitter. Um, And that is Norway. As with the text, as suggested by Christopher and Daniel's um, text from the Netherlands. Now, I think I'm going to call these the um, it's the Ibsen school of national canon and nation building, which is a sort of nineteenth and twentieth century realism that is the bleakest thing in the entire world. (laughs) Describe you the plot of of the text that Daniel says are at the heart of the canon in Flemish literature. Mother, why do we live? poor laborers living a life of misery. The next one, farmer beats his son to death. The next one, hard to summarize, but satirical and weird. And I like this one, singer, singer, nine machine, a modernist poem, an ode to the singer sewing machine. Uh, and then there were just like, you know, they just, just, just a whole lot more traumatic peasants murdering other traumatized peasants and everyone dying. Just so much death and misery and death late 19th century, early 20th century realism, and of course, that takes us to uh, Norway and to Ibsen at the the core of the Norwegian canon and um, sense of nation. I talked about Norway when I uh, talked about Ibsen when I talked about outdoor education um, a few months ago, so Ibsen, it's impossible to overstate how central Ibsen is. To Norwegian cultural identity and the development of the nation state. Um, Of course, it's it's in itself a sort of post-colonial nation in the 19th century as it's putting together its sense of self. We go back to Benedict Anderson's argument. We've got the spread of um, of new Norwegian in the vernacular, the celebration of Norwegian. Ibsen himself starts off going back to sort of like folk tales and traditions and constructing kind of loopy plays in prose, in uh, poetry for a while. And then he gives that up and we get the Doll's House and the things with which we're much more familiar with Ibsen. But those are just as much about constructing nations through literature as they were when he was kind of like doing plays where people pranced around and you know, sang songs that were from the Volkish tradition. Ibsen's the House. The happiest of his plays in that it starts with someone walking out of the house because they can't cope with the social construction of gender and and bourgeois, stifling bourgeois humanity. And that's the happy ending that that Nora just walks away at the end of the doll's house. Because what, of course, they do increasingly after that is they just shoot themselves in the head. (laughs) Um, It's just the same Strindberg, you know, for misery. We've got to look at Strindberg there, Miss Julie. Uh, Boys' Calicane, Hjörth's Will and Testament. Um, but again, your canon there, the, the national canon as taught in schools in the Netherlands and uh, in Flemish literature, as in Norwegian literature, it's, it comes from like, the, the 19th century, 20th century, and is hopelessly, bleakly realist, as opposed to your German literature that, that begins with all the storm and drang of Romanticism. Or again, I'm just going to keep returning to our absolutely rubbish UK canon, which doesn't exist. It's just Shakespeare, lads. That's it, Shakespeare. Okay? <laughs> ah, the invention of Shakespeare. You remember, uh, You remember? I say to you as if you were my head, but Wordsworth um, says, Milton, thou shouldst be living at this hour, not Shakespeare, Milton. And there, there was a while there when Milton was going to be the embodiment of, of English literature and then and then we decided on a shakespeare and said like, it was a roll of a dice and we're like no he he is the dude what with his convenient birth and death on saint george's day again lies <laughs> let's go to another country uh do. just scrolling down um what's fascinating of course always is it seems so very straightforward to say of course there is a literary canon of course there is what matthew arnold calls the best that has been thought and said and which you know english departments throughout the country have spammed onto their websites or the the outside of their interminable booklets but as soon as you start looking at other people's canons and find that you recognize barely any of them at all whatsoever it it, it draws attention to the artificiality of it like maybe it is the best that has been thought and said in that particular moment collected by those particular people making that particular reading list. What Bloom is doing is trying to create a cohesive Western literary canon. And yet, you know, you can't you can't put everything in it. You have to single some things out and what you single out ends up then shaping the whole um, like Portugal. uh, I'm. My pronunciation attempts at Portuguese would be possibly worse than my Dutch and Spanish ones. So I'm, I'm not even going to go there. But there's just only one name I recognize. Right. So and I only recognize that because someone essentially, if you are British or if you're English, someone had said, oh, you should try this interesting, obscure Portuguese poet who I carry around in a battered copy in my, you know, in my back pocket isn't this clever the way i think i did as well i know i did as well with uh, Herman hesse and sartre and stuff when i was 15. so like who who is this obscure poet called pasor well he's like portuguese national poet like literally everyone studies him he's the most famous man in the world if you speak or were educated in portuguese and yet doesn't appear on our best that has been thought and said it is highly contingent and chosen for reasons um i did not have time to research what jamaica has as its core reading curriculum because of course there's a very different relationship between being a settler colonial nation like australia or canada or the united states um, and being a former colonized nation like jamaica which must necessarily have a very very different relationship with its canon there are of course Amazing and fascinating interrogations of canonicity from writers around the former British Empire, Um, thinking of you know, interrogation of um, Swiss of Swiss family Robinson, of Robinson Crusoe Faux, or um, the way White Sargasso C looks at Jane Eyre. All of those necessarily are in a conversation with with literature written in English, published in the United Kingdom that interrogate what it means to have that shared language and use it. Um, A Suitable Boy by Vikram Seth, a gorgeous book, very, very heavy book, is, is, (laughs) I mean, quite literally heavy. He says in the beginning in his little epigram poem, buy me before good sense insists, you'll strain your purse and sprain your wrists. It is a huge book. But um, that, Laura, the main character, is studying English at university. The study of English literature in India is crucial to an enormous amount of imperial functions. And then it's really complex contested. What does our heritage mean when we are the inheritors of literature in English? Always in conversation with Babington Macaulay and that 1835 moment where we say that the English canon, the canon of books written in English should replace both you and your civilization. It's a way of manufacturing Englishness. Right, we are coming up to the end now. Oh, hi, Mister Vowles is saying list is Norway, Sweden, and that chap there is saying um, Milton a bit too Cromwell adjacent for the ruling classes. Yeah, I have to say my favourite Milton is not Paradise Lost, but um, because because I did Civil War A level, it's um, Ariopagitica and um, the tenure of kings and magistrates. But um, that very much adjacent to Cromwell. Yeah, way too much indeed. Uh someone's asking if you can if they can follow us on Instagram. Of course you can. Just go ahead and follow us on Instagram assuming we have such a thing. I'm not an Insta person. And Mike is leaving. Thank you Mike for your contribution. Um I think I would set out a challenge at this point which would be a a project challenge that I would be even interested in having said I'm not I'm an anti-canon person generally in that I'm fundamentally aware of how constructed and contingent it is. Think about Christina Rossetti, who is hugely popular in the 19th century, goes completely out of fashion in the 20th century, comes back into fashion in the 70s, but um, through the the kind of second wave feminism, entering literary studies departments. So she's foundational like Jane Eyre, um, the Gothic there too. Interesting side note to tie that to um, germany so now she's in the canon but she wasn't in the canon people go in and out of the canon to go back to benedict anderson the canon is as much a construction of the cheap printing technology as it is about the best that has been thought and said so the everyman library that was donated to every school in britain you know if it used to be if you're my age if you went into oxfam you could buy these everyman copies and the whole point of these kind of like early 20th century, late 19th century everyman books was to provide cheap versions of the canon for working people. So that ties directly to the Macaulay construction of international English as an imperial identity. It ties to Matthew Arnold, best that has been thought and said, which has a civilizing function on the British working classes. It also ties to much more sort of positive things about self education, autodidacticism and being able to access literature in English. Um, and it's all immensely fascinating. So the project, as I said, the project I would be interested in, given that actually I don't believe in any of it, is creating a United Kingdom canon. Why, why do we not have a UK canon? Why even saying a UK canon sounds completely ridiculous. Why why do we not have a literature in English, a sense of this is the body of literature in English which constitutes the United Kingdom? And is that a testament to how fragile our nation is, fundamentally, that we have no um Yeah, gonna get vows there. Edward Bower Lytton outsold Dickens in his time. Who reads him now? Exactly. My mother, who um, is one of the most amazing people in the universe in terms of always being able to find something to do to keep her interested, um, despite having terminal cancer and you know being housebound for several years now, she is always engaged. And one of the things she does is read the best selling books of any particular period. None of them, none of them are ever anything we've heard of at all, whatsoever. And My lord, they're bad. That's going to be the subject of my show next week is what were people actually reading and maybe we should study that we shouldn't spoilers we should not um right goodbye everyone it has been lovely talking to you and i will see you next week a uk canon yes exactly That chap there saying a uk canon would need to have some cornish literature we need cornish literature we need welsh literature we need regional literatures instead of like this weirdly denationalized nationalized de-localised Robert Stevenson thrown into the curriculum solely because it's really short. <laughs> That's what we do. Maybe we need more survey course approaches, like like the astonishing amount of literature covered by French and German children. Um, we need something. I've decided this is my really half-hearted crue de corps. Let's make a canon. And let's make it even more miserable than Norway and Sweden's, or if possible the Flemish canon okay all right I will see you next week guys
0: you've been listening to teachers talk radio tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org we look forward to hearing from you next time on teachers talk radio
1: Bye everyone. Happy Monday and happy Monday from my mother as well who didn't realize we were still broadcasting. Goodbye.